Hello and welcome to another episode of the Book Baby Spotlight Podcast, your home for conversations with authors, illustrators, editors, and other industry insiders from the world of self-publishing. My name is Sam Saddam, and I'm recording today from my basement instead of our Book Baby office thanks to the ongoing pandemic, so please excuse any dogs barking in the background or sirens going off. Hopefully we can get back to the office soon, and we're wishing everyone in the Book Baby community the very best. Stay safe. And I wanted to tell you guys today about some of the work our team is doing in response to the coronavirus. We've repurposed some of our manufacturing equipment and are now making face shields. Our first shipment went out to the local Pensacola Fire Department earlier this week. Uh, Face shields will be sold at cost, and our CEO, Tony Van Veen, believes we'll be cranking out 40 to 50,000 shields per day within the week. Uh, It's been really impressive work, and I'll include a link in the news articles in our show notes here. So our guest today is Lee Wind. He describes himself as a lighthouse of stories, true and fictional, that center marginalized kids and teens and celebrate their power to change the world. Closeted until his 20s, Lee writes the books that would have changed his life as a young gay kid. He earned a master's degree in education from Harvard and writes a popular blog with over 2.9 million page views called I'm Here, I'm Queer, What the Hell Do I Read? We'll talk about his latest YA novel, Queer as a $5 Bill, and the upcoming middle grade nonfiction, The Queer History Project, No Way, They Were Gay, and his day job for the Independent Book Publishers Association, or IBPA. He's the Director of Marketing and Programming focuses on empowering indie publishers to have their voices heard. He's also the official blogger for the Society of Children Book Writers and Illustrators. Lee, how are you holding up? Socially distancing the best you can? I am at a, at a very safe distance from you, especially since we're both uh, in our homes on opposite sides of the country. Yes, all good. So I'm hearing a lot of different predictions uh, regarding the state of self-publishing moving forward. In fact, I just had Bayat Barblin of Bowker on the podcast. He thought it was full steam ahead for indies, but it's been a wild couple of weeks. So how is the IBPA preparing? So first of all, let me just jump in and say that it, the term self-publishing, I've always had a little bit of uh, a reaction to because I believe that it tricks people into thinking that self-publishing means you can do everything yourself. and Um, At IBPA, we use the expression author-publisher rather than self-publisher or author-published because when you're you're publishing something, even if it's something that you've written, you're responsible for that being the most professional book it can be, the most awesome book it can be. And the way I think of it is that if no one is going to pay me to design the cover of their book, and trust me, they wouldn't, I'm not a designer, um, <laughs> then then I have no business designing the cover of my book. Uh, it's not my skill set. And if I want my book to compete in a world that has, you know, a million titles coming out a year, just in America, actually, that number is vastly understated. Um, there's a million uh, ISBNs going just to self uh, authors that are publishing themselves. Um, But on top of that are all the books coming out from the big five and all the other indie publishers. Um, If I want my book to compete, the very basic, most important thing I can do is make sure it's awesome. And to do that, I need to hire a team. I need to hire a professional editor. I need to hire a professional book designer. I need to hire a professional uh, cover designer. Um, I need a team with me to make my book awesome. And then it it has a chance 
of of doing well in the marketplace. So um, so I love Book Baby, and of course I I did my debut novel through Book Baby after crowdsourcing it. Um, but I I do think that it's more productive for us to think in terms of being author publishers rather than self publishers because we when we put on our publisher hat we're in charge of our own business in a sense. That back to your question, which was how, what's going on at IBPA given this sort of global health crisis. Um, we're we're working remotely. Uh, as I said, I'm working from home. Uh, we canceled our big conference, Publishing University, uh, which was supposed to take place in the beginning of April. Then also a lot of the programs we are involved in, like we usually have a 40 foot by 10 foot booth with about 200 to 250 of our members titles uh, at the American Library Association conference, uh, which was going to be in Chicago in June. And that was just canceled, which I think is totally the right call, but really disappointing. So there've been all these sort of disappointments um, and everybody's at home. And there's a lot of discussion about how people feel like they have so much time on their hands, which is in the IBPA office, we all feel like that's a bit ironic because we are busier than ever. Because in addition to sort of rolling back all these uh, programs the, that were in place and, and we were gearing up to make happen, we also have been trying to organize resources for indie publishers, including author publishers. So there's actually a page on the IBPA website that is that you don't have to be a member to to access that is resources for independent publishers um, that the, given what's happening with COVID-19. And uh, I think that that has made us all feel really unified that that it's not just the, the, the four people in that used to be in the office and that not, we're all at home, but it's really a community of more than 3,000 publishers who are really coming together to help each other. And when people discover things that are useful, they're sharing the information. So um, it is a fascinating moment, and we'll have to see what happens as it all unfolds. But you know, IBPA is up and working, and we are doing our best to be of service to our members. So how do you envision the coronavirus affecting the indie publishing world in general over time? I think that uh, we've already seen some of this shift uh, online. You know, Amazon announced last week that they're deprioritizing books. Mm -hmm. uh, and what's happening is that a lot of the online orders are getting are, are getting fulfilled in other ways, which I think actually could be really an important course correction because I feel like Amazon has too much of the market and that is dangerous when any uh, single entity holds too much, uh, then you're really vulnerable to something changing there. And, and they're notoriously not communicative and they don't really share what's going on. Um, so I feel like that could be really healthy, it, you know, when we, when we come out on the other side of, of this health crisis. Um, but so that's, definitely going on. Um, bookstores, a lot of bookstores have been uh, closing. Uh, some of them are open, but only for like um, curbside deliveries or, or doing online orders. Uh, definitely, if people listening to this are, are able and can donate to uh, the uh, book industry, it's called Bink, B-I-N-C. 
uh, BINCfoundation.org. It helps booksellers and bookstores. Uh, we want those to be robust parts of our ecosystem. So, um, you know, if you want a book and you can still order one from your local bookstore, do it. Um, that's very, very helpful. Um, libraries, a lot of them are closed physically. The ALA came out last week with a recommendation that all libraries close. Um, but that's the physical buildings. Uh, online, libraries are open, right? So like Overdrive is uh, open and available. And, and I believe we're going to see a larger share of people learning how to do that, right? With everybody home, they're going to be figuring out, man, I wish I could go to the library, but wait, I can actually access audiobooks and ebooks on my cell phone, you know, um, by through programs like Overdrive. And I believe there, there are a number of others. Um, so, uh, you know, we don't have a crystal ball, but definitely we're already seeing changes. And, you know, the big question is, you know, how will, how will things evolve? But it does feel like things are changing almost on a daily basis. And just for the record, book baby titles are delivered to Overdrive as well, so, <laughs> so everyone knows where to go. Uh, so, you know, what strategies would you recommend for someone who say they were on the cusp of publishing before this? You know, right now I'm personally recommending edit, edit, edit. Take all your time. Make sure you have that book perfect and get ready to go with it. Well, I think that's good advice for any time you're thinking of publishing. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, we had a webinar this morning about um, with a bunch of experts for IBPA, um, and uh, they were talking about like what's there actually are trends that are happening right now. So in the midst of this crisis, so like um, activity books, uh, books for kids, uh, especially nonfiction book for kids, because suddenly all these schools are closed and parents feel that they have to somehow help with the education of their children since they're, you know, not every school is doing remote learning. Um, there's a, you know, sort of a do-it-yourself stuff. Um, uh, I'm trying to look at what the other things that were mentioned. Um, oh, cookbooks, turns out, are kind of yeah. having a, a resurgence because people are home and they want to do something with their time. We're seeing we're seeing some of that. I, I don't know. At Book Baby, are you seeing trends in terms of what is doing well? Uh, we haven't seen any changes as far as genres of people publishing with us yet, but uh, we might just be you know ahead of the curve there, uh, since you know, people are usually just coming to us once the book is actually completed. Uh, that is interesting. I'm gonna have to have our IT team check out uh, the retail side as to if anything is making a difference right now as to two weeks ago. Yeah, but, uh, so I mean, I think there's, so I guess my point is that there's opportunity, right? Like if your book speaks to what's going on right now um, in a way that's helpful, or if it's like amazing escapist stuff, Maggie Langrick, who's a publisher that was on this webinar this morning said, um, either most useful for right now or compelling escapism. Is, mm. are the things that, that they're looking at. And the things that aren't that, they're sort of thinking, well, should we push the release dates? Or, um, you know, because there's a lot going on. Um, but I, I think that if you're putting stuff out that you think is great and is ready, if there's some way that you'll be able to talk about it and it will be of use to people, then I don't think you have to wait a long time, mm -hmm. but recognize that you're coming in to a very crowded moment in terms of people's bandwidth. 
So how are you going to get attention for your book if you're launching in the midst of this global health crisis? Now, in a month, it may feel different, right? We, we may all be used to sheltering in place and we may be clamoring for that fantasy novel. Uh, again, we'll, we'll have to see. But yeah, I think the advice should always be don't put it out in the world until, you know, that, that old uh, saw about like, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Mm. That's really true for books. And you don't want to put it out in the world until you're confident that it's awesome. Uh, what about changing a marketing plan? You know, would you recommend that for somebody if the book's already been released? I think it was uh, Slate was writing about how uh, this is really just going to exacerbate trends that are already on the way. Uh, so I'm wondering if uh, authors will focus even more on social media and that will be basically the only way that they have to market. Well, I mean, a lot of stuff is going online right now. And I think that that it's there's a opportunity for all of us indie authors to connect with our audiences, that this is the moment, right? That if, if you've been too busy and um, to, to kind of focus on it, knowing that, you know, you can use the resources online to kind of connect with the people that you want to let them know that you have books for them um, is, is really useful. Um, you know, bookstore, like kind of doing the same thing, right? Like online bookstores, libraries, for bookstores, the, the hard truth about bookstores is that there are three things in the best of times that a bookstore wants to believe. Um, and the more of them you have, the better chance you'll have that the bookstore will bring your book into their store. So the first one is that someone's going to walk in off the street and ask for your book by name. Um, the second is that somebody on their staff is going to be so jazzed and excited about your book that they're going to hand sell it to the next person that walks in that store. And the third is that there's something about the cover or the title or the overall presentation of the book that the store is convinced that if they shelve it face out, um, it's going to sell itself. So the more of those you have going for you, the better chance that a bookstore is going to bring your book into the store. And, and you know, BookBaby has this amazing thing that um, if a bookstore orders 10 copies of your book and then doesn't sell all of them and returns them, BookBaby doesn't charge uh, the, the, the author publisher for that. Um, most systems do you guys, you all just shelve it and, you know, keep it the next time someone orders it, you, you go to the shelf and grab it. It was one of the things that convinced me to go with book baby. Um, however, um, it's no, it doesn't help anybody, right? You don't want that situation. You don't want bookstores ordering it and then returning it because it didn't sell. So, um, for me personally, I've done very little bookstore advertising or promotion because I'm not there yet, right? Like I, I have one bookstore, my local bookstore, where they know me. They've I've had a few people on their staff read my book. So, um, and I, from my personal website, I have a link that says, if you want a signed copy of my YA novel, Queer is a $5 Bill, order it from this bookstore. And I go in and I sign copies. In that one bookstore, I fulfill all three of those things. People are coming in asking for it, not not as much as I'd like, but they <laughs> do. Uh, you know, the, there are people on staff that are going to hand sell it. The next person that walks in that store and says, hey, I'm looking for a, a queer themed teen novel. They'll be like, oh, well, this is a local author. Um, and the, the third thing is that 
they do shelve that book face out. They shelve Queers of Five Dollar Bill face out. Um, but that's one bookstore across an entire country. So even in the best of times, you know, bookstores can be really, really challenging. Um, libraries, I think, given that they're open online, it's still a really great time to to, to market to librarians. Um, probably email versus sending them, you know, flyers. I don't know that people are in their offices checking their their physical mail. Um, if the library is closed, they're probably working like home like we are, but they are most of them are checking their emails and um, it's probably a relief to get something that's not COVID-19 related in your inbox. Um, you know, you want to be respectful. I think every email I've sent out over the last two weeks started with a personal quick little sentence like, I hope you're well, right? Like we're humans first and, you know, nobody wants to feel like they're just being sold uh, to. And also, how can you be of, of, of help, right? Like if you have a fantasy novel, then maybe it's, you know, wow, I have a, I have a, the perfect escapist, you know, fiction for this moment. Or if it's a book about personal finance, then, you know, I have something that are going to help people get through the, this, this economic downturn that we're currently struggling at the beginning of. Um, you know, I think that that kind of having a, a, an angle in mind of how you're talking about stuff, like everything I do, everything I write is all about empowering kids and teens. So um, when I talk about it, that, that helps me get allies on that journey. And then ostensibly, we have extra time right now. So it's a chance for us to, yes, go back and make sure that that manuscript is, is, is really ready. But it's also if we have our books out or as we're getting ready to publish, it's a chance for us to work on our metadata and make sure that that is as good as it can be. And I know that people get a little scared from the word metadata, but really it's just the online information that helps people find your book. So if we just called it that, if we just all agreed to call it that and not metadata, maybe it wouldn't be so scary, but it's um, it's really important. And and we have this amazing, you know, if you have the time that you're home, work on your stuff, but also take advantage of the opportunity to really look at other things. Like everybody should close your eyes and imagine on your ideal reader's bookshelf, what are the books that are on either side of yours. And of course, you know, it's your book is face out because it's your ideal reader and they love your book so <laughs> much. But what they they read other things. I mean, that's one of the great things, right? Like right. a reader that loved your book, they're going to want another great book right after it. So, what are those other books that they've bought in the last 2 years? And you know, those are kind of your marketing mentor texts. And you can kind of look and see like, all right, well who did what? So, uh, an example is that, so my book is about uh, a kid that discovers this real historical letters that Abraham Lincoln wrote Joshua Fry Speed, and he's gay and closeted, and he becomes convinced that Abraham was in love with Joshua. And uh, P.S., I'm convinced of that too. And he decides <laughs> he's going to change the world uh, by outing Abraham Lincoln. And, uh, you know, and then it kind of all blows up in his face in, in a big conservative backlash and media firestorm. Um, so that's my novel. Uh, so when I was trying to figure out, uh, you know, what were the book, what was the book next to it on the shelf? Um, Becky Albertalli's uh, Simon versus the Hobo Sapiens Agenda had just happened. Uh, it was becoming a movie, Love, Simon. And I was like, OK, that's it. That's my marketing mentor text. So when I went about 
figuring things out, I look to see like, well, who blurbed that book? And, you know, where was it getting reviews? And what blogs were talking about it? And um, in fact, when I did my audiobook, I hired the narrator, the same narrator as um, that that book had. And that book was from a big five publisher. But I, I you know, I, I hired a company to help me do the audiobook, and and we paid Michael Crouch to to narrate my book. And what's fascinating, which I didn't know at the time, is that people that love audiobooks follow narrators. So it kind of became this amazing place where my audiobook is getting discovered. Uh, because people are looking, well, what did Michael Crouch do besides this book that I loved? Um, so I think taking this moment to really look and, you know, figure out like, what are your keywords? And, you know, is your, is your author bio really helping you? And are you really leveraging all the things that you can to kind of make it more successful? Um, and, there's a lot of resources that are out there for you to learn. And in fact, IBPA, the Independent Book Publishers Association, um, offers a lot of information about wh what you should, what you need to be aware of. Um, not just like a, um, in terms of your metadata, but there's even a, a two-page PDF that's basically a checklist for professional publication to make sure that you have everything right. Like if you look at the spine of books um, in your on your bookshelf, at the very bottom is a little logo usually, um, and that's the logo of a publishing company, and it's called a colophon. Um, and I didn't know that when I, you know, I did. First of all, I didn't know it had a name, and second of all, <laughs> I don't know that I don't know that I ever really paid attention to it. Yeah. But, in, but in the process of putting, you know, getting my book published through with Book Baby, um, you know, doing doing all the stuff for me. Um, that was really interesting. Like I had to figure out, all right, what's my colophon? Because I want my book to be indistinguishable in quality from something coming out from one of the big five publishers. Uh, well, but yeah, let's it, talk about your first book here with Book Baby, uh, as queer as a five dollar bill. Uh, that was your first novel, you said. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was. It had a kind of crazy backstory where um, I so. I mentioned the the letters between Abraham Lincoln and Joshua Fry Speed, and I'm gay. I didn't come out until my 20s and uh, had a really, really hard time being closeted. And uh, when I was in my 30s, I went and heard someone give a talk about um, about Abraham Lincoln's letters to Joshua Fry Speed. And the guy was saying that he was convinced that Abraham was in love with Joshua. And I was like, that can't be true. How could I have, how could I have not never heard of this? But I... Uh, I actually went to the library and I got out a bunch of books that had the letters in them and I started reading them and I was completely blown away because uh, the way that Abraham talks to Joshua about how he felt and how he about Joshua had just married a woman named Fanny after he and Abraham had lived together for four years. And then Abraham writes him and asks him um, eight months after the wedding, are you now in feeling as well as judgment? Glad that you're married as you are. Um, from anybody but me, this would be an impudent question not to be tolerated, but I know you'll tolerate it from me. And that was kind of how I felt when I was in high school, when I was in college, when I was in grad school, when I was dating girls, I judged it that it was the right thing to do for society, my parents, um, uh, you know, but it, I didn't feel it. And I kept hoping that the feeling would come and it didn't. I eventually got honest with myself and everybody else, but it was a very difficult journey. But hearing Abraham Lincoln writing 
Joshua in eight, the 1830s, the exact thing that I felt was this enormous epiphany moment. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I think they were gay and me. I think they were in love with each other. And as I started to do more research, I got more and more convinced. And I just, I, I don't have a time machine. And if I had, I would have gone back and told myself this. But since I don't have a time machine, I thought, well, I'm a writer. Let me let me write a story about a teenager discovering this and wanting to change the world with it. Um, but as I was writing the novel, there was so much, so much evidence that came up. And I started to think that maybe there were two books. Maybe there was a, a fiction book, but maybe there was a nonfiction book for young readers where it was sort of like, look, don't, don't, don't trust me. Here's the primary source materials. Here are the letters. Look at it and you decide. Um, I never really had a history class that I liked when I was in school. Um, I, I, history was presented as a bunch of names and dates to memorize. Mm. And um, I'm not a big memorizer. I don't love that. So I didn't love the idea of a history book that was just about Abraham and Joshua. It sounded boring. And I don't want to put out anything in the world that's boring. So I, I realized that it's kind of a bigger, a bigger issue because the history of people of color, of women, of um, disabled people, and of men who loved men and women who loved women and people who lived outside gender boundaries, none of none of these groups get their history told in the way history is taught in this country. And I realized, well, I'm not I'm not the person that should be telling the stories of women or people of color, but I am the person that that can tell the stories of men who loved men and women who loved women and people who lived outside gender boundaries. So I, I really view it. I'm the G of LGBTQAI2 plus. And my job is to be an ally to everybody else. So I, I put together a proposal for uh, a, the nonfiction book, which was called The Queer History Project. That sold to one of the big five publishers um, a couple of, uh, at this point, a, a while ago, a long time ago. And um, it, we were working on it parallel to my working on the novel. And then it, uh, our, our current president was elected and two weeks later, that big publisher canceled my book. And I was devastated. It was like the hardest moment of my of my whole uh, career. And my agent at the time was like, this is really strong. Don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll sell it. Um, but eight months went by and uh, nobody would take it. And in fact, the novel had been on submission for over a year. And so I decided, you know, I have a blog. Um, I, that's how I got started in all this. I started a blog over 12 years ago uh, now called I'm Here, I'm Queer, What the Hell Do I Read? And uh, it's just past 2.9 million page loads. It does really well. And it's given me a lot of um, uh, standing within the industry, within the world of children's literature. So I decided that I would do a crowdfunding thing and I would uh, kickstart the novel because I really felt this thrumming sense of responsibility that I really believe that my book can change somebody's life because I know how much it would have changed my life. And I wanted to get it out there to kids. But then when I was doing the crowdfunding thing, I was like, I, I was uncomfortable with the idea of like, hey, give me money to help Lee publish Lee's book because Lee wants a book published. So I, I went back to that thing of like, how is it a service? How can I be helpful to other people? How is this not just about helping me? So I came up with a structure where everybody that got a book was donating a book to an LGBTQ teen. 
And I teamed up with a nonprofit, uh, Camp Brave Trails. And uh, the crowdfunding thing worked really well. We fully funded in six days and we raised enough money to give away 910 copies of the book, uh, which has happened. So um, that was really, really cool. And so that was the journey with that book. And then just before that book came out with Book Baby, um, it was revealed that the agent I had had at the time was a crook and was lying um, and had never submitted the novel. And um, wow. yeah, and, and in fact, had never resubmitted the nonfiction either. So uh, I, I have a, a, a real agent that's not a crook now and uh we did get a new home for the nonfiction book so the queer history project no way they were gay is coming out from learner um in may of 2021 so it feels like a long way away but i'm glad it's gonna have a home and then hopefully um you know that'll give new life and, and new interest to the kind of companion novel which is queer as a five dollar bill that was quite the story <laughs> It's a crazy uh, journey. I don't even know where to start digging in. <laughs> so sounded like you put a lot of yourself into your book. Uh, is the main character based on yourself, at least? Did you feel that sort of connection? I think every character is based on you when you write. Um, like if, if I can't feel that the character is real, then, you know, then it's not going to be real. I'm a real plot writer. I mean, I really start from knowing what's going to happen with the plot and then my rewriting and rewriting and rewriting is to make the characters feel three-dimensional and real and it takes a long time it takes eight or more drafts for me to feel like the characters are doing things independently of me which is crazy and it's it's remarkable that none of us can actually explain how the process works but <laughs> but there's that moment where it feels it starts to feel more real and whether it's, you know, definitely the main character, Wyatt, has a lot of me in him, but he also is not me at all. Uh, he's much braver than I was. And, you know, maybe it's a bit of wish fulfillment. Like, this is what I wish I'd been able to do when I was a teenager. But also, it's not historical fiction. It's it's happening now. I will say, just um, going back to, you know, we were talking about what are we doing now? Like, what, what can, given what's going on in our world? So... I've been thinking a lot about how on social media, so my blog is all about for kids and teens, and my books are all for kids and teens. But on social media, I've never really wanted to connect with kids and teens. It just feels creepy. Um, so I've been talking to, you know, other adults, you know, uh, and what I was kind of my breakthrough in the past two weeks that since we've been sequestered in our homes, has been that um, I want to create some way that I can authentically talk to kids and teens directly, but not, I don't want to be a counselor. I'm not a counselor, right? I don't want to be a therapist. I also don't want to be a celebrity. I don't want to celebritize myself. That feels very uncomfortable. Um, I want my books to be the focus. You know, I want these stories from history to be these things that can kind of open people up because I really feel like, once you know the story of Abraham and Joshua, you're kind of like, well, wait a minute. What are the other stories from history that we aren't hearing? And right, then you can, get, sure. you can get into like Eleanor Roosevelt and her love affair with Lorena Hickok. And yeah, she was the first lady of the United States. But like there's she she was in love with this woman. And we have all this primary source evidence to prove it. Um, you get into things like the Pharaoh Hatshepsut, 
who over 22 years of ruling Egypt um, started out basically being portrayed as having a female body and then eventually having a, you know, a transition period of time uh, where they exhibited both male and female characteristics. And then towards the end of their rule, they were portrayed completely in a masculine form. So like, I think that would be super liberating and exciting for people that are gender nonconforming or gender queer, or intersex to discover, to learn about, but nobody's really talking about this stuff, especially to kids and teens. So, um, you know, once, once we sort of break down that false facade of history, history starts to kind of make more sense too. Like I was reading, so Mahatma Gandhi, he, uh, you know, he's pretty darn famous and, you know, um, the whole non, non-violent protest thing and his big, you know, the soulmate of his life wasn't his wife, Kasturba. It was this German Jewish architect, Hermann Kallenbach. And, you know, I'm, when, when it was, uh, included in a biography of him a few years ago, the book ended up getting banned in some of the states of India. But when you go and you read the letters, there are like 200 letters between um, Gandhi and Herman that we have and that have been published um, online. The more I read those letters, the more I started to think like, it's not a footnote that these people were queer and, and that like they were amazing people in history. And oh, by the way, they were a guy that loved another guy. I actually started to think that maybe their being queer had something to do with them being great because there was this amazing thing that Gandhi said, you know, it doesn't matter if you pray facing left and I pray facing right, we're all praying to the same God. That was kind of this enormous breakthrough in sort of the world, right? In humanity. And maybe part of that was his having that realization was because he was in love with this German Jewish guy. Like, it's just kind of neat if you start to think about like, well, why was Eleanor Roosevelt the person that worked with the United Nations on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the fact that she was in love with another woman and she had friends that were women in, in romantic relationships together, maybe gave her the insight into that. Maybe, you know, Lincoln is the president we had that helped, you know, free the slaves because he also was an outsider in another way. And maybe that gave him more compassion for, you know, the ultimate outsiders in the culture back then who were, were, were enslaved African-Americans. It's, it's kind of amazing how history can kind of open up. I get all excited about how the content can be so empowering. So what I did is I went on TikTok and I got an account on TikTok, which is where all the teens are, my teenage daughter tells me. And, um, and I tried to figure out, well, how can I do it? So I've spent some of this time, like last weekend, I got my daughter's help and my husband's help. And we did this sort of like 15 second cool, um, you know, very uh, rudimentary animation kind of thing, um, all about Abraham and Joshua, but set to the song Boys by Lizzo. So it sort of speaks to kids directly. It's using music that they like. Um, it's not about me. It's really about the content. And um, in the first day, within 24 hours, it had 400 people that had seen it on TikTok and 100 people that had seen it on Instagram. So I'm using this time to try to experiment and, and push myself to connect with my audience in new ways. Um, and I think that that's an opportunity for, for all of us right now to really think about, well, how can I reach my audience? Are you doing a lot of writing during this time? I am. All right. So big shout out to Linda Sue Park. Linda Sue is brilliant. She was won the Newbery Award for uh, the novel A Single Shard. Um, she is uh, one of the people I really look up to the most in the children's book world. And she was sharing that uh, 
her writing time kind of shrank suddenly. She went from kind of having all the time, she was a full-time writer, um, to suddenly she was helping watch two grandchildren, both of whom were under five, four days a week, like while the parents were at work. And she said that she started doing a version of uh, the Pomodoro method, uh, and she calls it a writing sprint. And she tells herself that she just has to focus for 12 minutes. And she sets the timer on her cell phone for 12 minutes, and she sits down and she writes. And then if it's going really great and nobody needs her, she hits it again. When it, when it goes off, she just hits it again and does another 12 minutes. And she says, what, when she was telling me this at like a year and four months ago, she was saying the most she's managed to do is five in a row. So Sam, five times 12 is, is an hour. That's 60 minutes. Like mm. I used to feel like I need a good three hour chunk of time to get anything constructive done. And it meant that I only wrote on the weekends. And that was really, because I have a full-time job. Um, and that was really frustrating. And I, I, I always was feeling frustrated that I wasn't getting as much time as I wanted writing. So I started doing this 12 minutes a day thing. And the genius of it is that it really adds up. And because you're in the manuscript every day, it doesn't take you much time to get back into it. So like I can immediately pick up where I was. I mean, within a minute, I'm back in the flow of it. Um, and you know, many days I do take more time. I get up extra early on Tuesdays and Thursdays and I have at least an hour to write on those days. Um, so, you know, it, it, for me, that's been really hugely, hugely helpful, especially since I'm trying to finish a new novel and deliver edits to, um, my editor at Learner. So I've actually, I, I had to learn it again because I was sort of procrastinating on the edits, um, because I was like, oh, I need a big chunk of time. I don't know why I had to learn it twice, right? Like, I have a big, I need a big chunk of time to sit down and deal with all the end notes. Like, mm -hmm. no, I don't. I need 12 minutes a day, and I'm going to make it through. And I'm going to, you know, piece by piece, end note by end note, um, I'm going to make my way through the manuscript. And it is astonishing to me how productive you can be, even if all you have is 12 minutes to give to it a day. Do you think that uh, this quarantine is going to affect the actual uh, topics of what people are writing about? I, I know uh, there's the old story that William Shakespeare wrote all of King Lear while on lockdown because of the plague. And I'm curious if you think that this is going to have this major effect on our culture where certain people are writing, they're writing about certain things, they're in certain headspaces. And what are the long-term ramifications of that? I would imagine we're going to see a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> just because we, it seems like we're living through a zombie apocalypse. At least, you know, you go down this street for a walk and there's nobody um, except for other people walking. Um, although the air is really beautiful in Los Angeles, I will say not much smog. Uh, Silver linings where you can find them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm not sure. I, I feel like it, if anything, the thing that we should all be thinking about is like, let's write the book we most want to have out in the world, right? Like I don't, writing and publishing a book is so much work. I don't know that I would say, oh yeah, you're gonna you know, do that because you think it'll sell. I mean, yeah, you want it to sell, but you also wanna make sure you're, you're spending your time on something that you're really and truly passionate about because it's so hard. And if you're not passionate about it, you're gonna, it's not gonna work. Um, so, you know, whether it's craft book, you know, or you wanna write that, you know, great American novel, or you want to, you know, 
once we're able to travel, you want to do a travel book. I think that you should write what you really want to write. And then, you know, write with your author hat on, but recognize that at some point you're going to have to put your publisher hat on or your author marketing hat on if you get picked up by a publisher. Um, Because even when you get a contract with a publisher, whether it's a big five or it's, you know, an indie house, you're still responsible for that audience interaction, for, for getting that audience to be excited about your book. All right. So I, I think I've taken off quite a bit of your time. So a couple more quick quick questions before we go. So the second book you're working on, is that going to be published through Book Baby? I don't know. I don't know. I think one of the things that I've learned through Book Baby is that there are parts of this journey I love and there are parts of it that I don't. And you may choose to edit this out completely, Sam. <laughs> but I don't love being a publisher. I love being an author and I love doing the marketing stuff and I, I love uh, I love helping people on their journeys uh, through my day job, but it's not... The correct answer was yes, for the record. <laughs> I know the correct answer was yes, but it wasn't honest. So um, you, you can just edit that, that question out entirely. <laughs> um, no, truly, I mean, it, it, it's no shade to Book Baby. It's not like I'm going to do it and not do it through Book Baby. It's just that it's not what I want for my journey, in part because I don't think, again, not for, I'll tell you offline when we're not recording. Um, but I think it's a genre issue too. Like, you know, for me, like the people I see being really successful are, are doing things where they're able to churn it out more. And I'm not a churner out kind of writer. Fair enough. We, I know uh, it wasn't the answer you wanted. <laughs> You know, everyone's got some extra time on their hands. Uh, what are you reading during this crisis? Are you looking for the, the escape into a fantasy world? So I, I kind of have it into four little sections. So there are books I'm reading about craft, like Invisible Ink, uh, which I'm really excited about, um, there, which I listened to on audio and then I ordered from my local bookstore uh, because it was so good. I wanted to actually like sit down with it and kind of go through the exercises. Um, I'm looking at some mentor texts, some books that I find fascinating and that are helping me sort of explore ideas. So Laurie House Anderson's Shout, which is this sort of um, memoir in verse, is super interesting to me. And so I've been spending some time really studying that and not just reading it, but looking at sort of the structure that underlies it. Um, That's a thing that you can do if you're you're writing kids books, uh, picture books. One of the pieces of advice I've heard is to um, grab a picture book that you think is really amazing and sort of in the same feel as the book you want to create and type it out. And so you can actually get the sense of like the rhythm of the page turns and stuff. Like you're typing out someone else's manuscript, but you're also creating almost a template for what your manuscript might look like. Um, and uh, that's been fun because I love picture books and I, I it hasn't been announced yet but I do have a picture book that's going to come out in the fall of 2021 which is not through book baby it's it's through an independent publisher um but uh but I'm excited about that because I love picture books um and then for fun I've just been reading a bunch of uh a bunch of different things I read Infinity Sun by Adam Silvera which is sort of a gay teen fantasy novel I read Anger is a Gift which was um, a gay teen reality-based thing, but it was fabulous. Um, and then I uh, listened to Tanahitsi Coates' The Water Dancer, which wasn't a teen book, but was I, he's an author I respect so much, and I was super curious to 
sort of hear what he was going to do. Um, yeah, Bayad so, actually recommended that as well, and it's uh, one that I've read too. So I think everyone's on top of that one. <laughs> yeah, it was really good, and with you know the Harriet Tubman biopic that just happened, um, it's it's fun to see. I've also been watching a lot of you know television and episodic things, and you know we're we're all streaming things. So um, I, I look at those because I think that a lot of this is about understanding story. So when I watch stuff like Money Heist, which is this Spanish action uh, TV series, which I'm really, really enjoying. I'm thinking about it in terms of story and structure and characters, and I'm having a great time with that. It is a terrible title, um, but uh, it's a quite a great show from Spain. So, Thank you again for your time, Lee. I'll let you get back to work. Stay Thank safe. You. My pleasure. Stay safe. Take care. And that was Lee Wind. You can visit his website at www.leewind.org to subscribe to his newsletter. His novels available on Bookshop, Amazon, and most other places books are sold. If you want to publish with BookBaby, just like that expert did, we want to hear from you. Info at bookbaby.com or 877-961-6878. Thanks again to Lee for joining us, and thanks to Brian and Jim as always. I'm Sam Saddam, and until next time... This has been the Book Baby Spotlight Podcast. Stay safe and wash your hands.